Welcome. It's a real joy and a privilege to be with you. And I bring greetings from the saints at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Norfolk. And it's been almost six years since I had the joy of preaching here with you, so I'm not sure what I said last time, but uh, hopefully I'll do better this time. Uh, Carlos has finally allowed me back, so I'll be on my best behavior. Now, our churches have a very close bond. For those of you who don't know, uh, Trinity was very involved in the planting of Redeemer long ago. Uh, but it's also true that there are a lot of people in this congregation who once worshipped at Trinity. And I think that's really beautiful because, you see, the local church is the, the shape that Jesus, Jesus has given to us for accomplishing his ministry in the world. And so uh, as we move from one place to another, it's right and appropriate that we join ourselves to the local church. And it's just fabulous for me to see those who once lived in Norfolk and were active members in, at Trinity now here in Virginia Beach and active at Redeemer. It's, that's really fantastic. In fact, I even have one friend here. He and I were both involved in a church in Charlottesville together. And yet, and now, and now the Lord's brought us here. And he is doing his work not through, um, oftentimes we expect it to be through these big grand deeds, Billy Graham crusades or something, right? But actually, the bulk of the kingdom work, the vast majority of the kingdom work is happening through the local church and through the work of, of worship and care and ministry is going on here. So I'm excited to be with you this morning. We're going to look today actually at the character that God expects from the local church. The, the local church is the gathered assembly of believers, right? And, and the Lord has a lot to teach us about what he wants us to look like, how he wants us to show forth his character and his heart to the world. So that's what we're going to look at today. The, how the, the character that God wants to see manifest in its church, be, because it's not enough for us just to get together on Sundays and, and say the right things or proclaim the right things. It's not enough for us to just, ha, um, you know, have this faith in Jesus that leads to salvation but doesn't lead to a change, because the, the work of the church is to be a light to the world and to show forth the heart of God to the world. And that means that our belief has to be put into action, that the character of the church must be on display. So let's look at that today, the kind of character God wants to see revealed in the work of his church. That's what our passage is about. It's a very familiar passage. Um, it's printed in your bulletin, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And sure enough, there is lesson here for the church for all time. And that is going to lead to some different contextualization. It's going to look a little different in certain times and places, but the heart of the matter is the same. And as we talk about the local church this morning, is that vehicle that Jesus has crafted and commissioned to carry out his kingdom work in the world. I want us to be honest with the fact that even though we're all here in worship, uh, most people and many of us today continue to have a pretty low view of the church. I regularly hear the refrain that people like Jesus, it's his followers they can't stand. Or that being involved in the local church is just inconvenient. It's messy. It doesn't fit nicely into our schedules. And if you hear uh, people don't have time for the church, it's often, it's often the case that they don't see a need for the church. I'm sure many of us in this room have struggled with or maybe are even struggling with this very thing. But to appreciate how challenging Jesus's instructions are to all who would come and follow him, uh, we have to first appreciate how challenging we find the institution of the church itself. We would much rather many of us just have a me and Jesus approach, but rather he calls us to this communal faith, this faith worked out together. And a low view of the church isn't, we, we might tend to associate that with irreligious people. But the reality is that it very often is the case among religious people as well. Look at who we encounter in this passage. We encounter a lawyer, someone who is going to be uh, likely a very religious person, an expert in the religious law. And yet he has what we might see today to be a rather low view of the church. He knows his Bible well. He wants and expects to inherit eternal life. And the problem for him is that he, as he engages with Jesus, he sees God's word more clearly and finds that a true faith cannot be compartmentalized. True faith leads to a change in character that leads to a change in action, which leads to a change in how we see the people around us, both in the church and outside of the church. Because true faith calls the lawyer and us away from caring only about himself and people like him. Because the church is called to reflect the very heart of Christ to the world. And we're God's agents, his emissaries. His heart is seen both in how we love one another and how we love the world. And, and based off of your actions, just in the last week, say, what might someone think God's heart for the world is? Just think about that for a moment. Perhaps disdain? Indifference? Uh, smug superiority? I, I don't know. Uh, those are just some ideas. As the lawyer 
engages with Jesus in this passage, we see quite clearly what God's heart for the world is, though. It's a heart of mercy. It's a heart of love. And the church is therefore called to show mercy. It's called to show forth God's heart to the world. So what we're going to see today is that Christians show mercy to others because we have received mercy from God. Christians show mercy to others because we have received mercy from God. What we have received from God, we're called to show to the world. And we're going to see how God's mercy fundamentally changes our character. But as we look at the questions of this text, I want us to ask, to continue to ask ourselves, why do we see so little mercy in our lives? What is keeping us, like the lawyer, from this work of neighboring? What does it look like to be a church that is in Virginia Beach and for Virginia Beach? So we're going to look at three things. First, the importance of neighboring to the church. Second, the avoidance of neighboring to the ch in the church. And then third, the embrace of neighboring by the church. The importance of neighboring, the avoidance of neighboring, and the embrace of neighboring. Those are our three points today. So let's start with the importance of neighboring to the church. Look at the interaction between Jesus and the lawyer in this first paragraph. You see how Luke reveals in the opening sentence that the lawyer was putting Jesus to the test. He says he wants to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. And if you're a you know, good Reformed Presbyterian Christian, you're like, aha, I see the trick right there. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. And you're right. That's good. That's a good response, a good thought for those of you who had it. But that's actually not the way, the direction Jesus goes in this passage. Okay? Jesus, Jesus plays along with the lawyer for a minute. And he, and he makes the lawyer answer his own question. And the lawyer gives the correct answer according to Jesus. And that's noteworthy. So what does the lawyer do? The lawyer took two passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5, this passage about loving God, and Leviticus 19.18, this passage about loving neighbor, and he joined them together there in verse 27 of our passage, where he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And anyone, according to Jesus, this is correct. Anyone who simply loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind and loves their neighbor as themselves will live. It's easy. It sounds so simple. Do this and you will live, Jesus says. But, of, you know, how can any of us do this? How can any of us love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? Really love their neighbors as themselves. When you, when you start to dig down into this, you realize the impossibility of the task. And, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the religious leaders of Jesus' time— you know, we, it can be easy for us to caricature them as, as bad guys. But let's, let's hold off for a minute and, and think, what are they? They're looking at this command. They can see the law clearly. They understand this command, and they understand how impossible it is. So what do they try to do? They try to manage it, okay? They try and manage the task. They understood the importance of keeping the law, they failed to see their inability to do so. So they, they kind of shrunk the law to, to make it this manageable task. Who is my neighbor, right? That's the question he's asking. How can, how can, we, how can we make this doable, Jesus? Now, at Trinity, where, where I know the, the, the people pretty well, although I, I guess I know a lot of you well, too, uh, per, and perhaps at Redeemer, too, we tend to make the opposite mistake as the scribes and Pharisees, Okay. 
we we see our inability to keep the law quite well, don't we? And what we fail to appreciate is the importance of the law for showing us the heart of God. We, we can so easily move past it, oh, well, that's not doable, and just fail to see how important it is to see the heart of God in the law. Because God's law is summarized by love for God and love for neighbor, and the church can and does fail on both of these accounts. We, we fall off the rail on both of these places. And uh, Luke chapter 10 is this magnificent chapter for the church because right after the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have the story of Martha and Mary, these two sisters, um, where the, the sister Martha was, was so busy serving, right? And Jesus said, Mary's chosen the better portion. She's chosen to delight in the Lord. And we see in the story of Martha and Mary uh, a good uh, juxtaposition to the parable of the Good Samaritan because they show us two different problems that the church has. The Martha problem is the problem of just going out and serving, 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 loving our neighbor, failing to love the Lord, okay? What I'm going to suggest and what I think this parable points out to us today is that an, an equally important problem is the problem we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Oh, yes, I love the Lord. I go to worship. I, I pray all the time. But I don't love my neighbor. And you see, both are not options for the church. We have to both love God and love our neighbors. And though both are fundamental to right relationship with God. So the church can't be the church without prioritizing both. We can't say, well, we're just going to focus on this thing. Or we're just going to do this one. Because the two actually lead, when done properly, lead to each other. And the heart of God is so holy, so good, so free of corruption, that, you know, when we look at this standard of doing these things, we, we find it laughable almost how impossible it is to, to live up to this. And, and what, what I want you to see as we look at the importance of these things is to see that, yes, it, it is impossible for us. And that's why Jesus had to come. Because Jesus had to come to perfectly keep this law for us. This law of loving God and loving neighbor. So we'd be free of the punishment of failing to keep the law because the law is important to God. And Jesus made us neighbors when he took on flesh. When he became incarnate, he, he made us his neighbors that he might show love to us on the cross and he showed us mercy because mercy is a fundamental part of God's character that he, fund, that he made clear to us on the cross. And, you know, what we need to see is that a healthy relationship with God then is going to involve absorbing the things he's passionate about. And when you don't see yourself taking on any interest in the things that, sh that the person you're in relationship with is interested in, you have to wonder how, how close you really are, right? I mean, my wife has gotten, is, has all her various interests. I don't necessarily share them, but I certainly know a lot more about them now, or at least I should. The other day, we, uh, we just had a, well, we have a two-year-old daughter, and uh, we sent her to grandma's house a couple, uh, a couple months ago for the weekend, and we went out to a nice dinner, and uh, my wife said, well, you pick the place. I don't want to know. And I took her out, I picked the place, and we got there, and she said, really, this is what you chose? <laughs> I said, yeah, what's the matter? She's like, I've told you I don't like this restaurant, <laughs> right? Now, if I were more attuned to my wife's loves and passions and desires, I would know 
I would remember when she tells me, I don't like this restaurant, and I would not take her there. And I took her there, and she said at the end of it, this time I will remember. She said, I do not need to come to this restaurant again. <laughs> so I, I will remember that now. It took me a little while. But generally speaking, when we're in close relationship with someone, <laughs> we pay attention to the things they care about, the things they love. But you see, that problem I have my, with my wife, it's the very same problem I have with the Lord, that I'm, that I'm dull that I'm, uh, that I'm numb to his desires, and they're not, they're not shaping me as much as they should because I'm too consumed with my own desires. I'm too consumed with myself. It's the same problem I have in my marriage that I have with the Lord. And it's a failure of relationship when we fail to see the importance of neighboring in the church. So that's the importance of neighboring in the church. Let's talk about the avoidance of neighboring in the church. Uh, look at... Look at, uh, look at verse 29. The lawyer kind of is, to, his first question is rather easily dispatched of by Jesus. So he comes back and he desires to justify himself. And he says, well, okay, well, who is my neighbor? And I think that motivation is important. The, the, Luke is telling us that the lawyer is not engaging perhaps uh, forthrightly with Jesus. He, he really wants to justify himself. But yet he still is asking a good question. He takes the law seriously, wants to know what's required of him. You or, you or I might say, he's practicing good boundaries, some good self-care, you know. Who, who, who exactly, Jesus? I'll go do it, but you just don't. And, and Jesus is not going to have it. Well, how does he answer? He answers with a parable. And it's a very famous parable. We're told in verse 30 of a man who was robbed, stripped, beaten, left for dead by the side of the road. Now, we aren't told anything about the character or the ethnicity of the man. We're simply told about his need. Okay? Jesus then tells us about both a priest and a Levite, two religious leaders of sorts, and they see the plight of this man, and what do they do? Nothing. They do nothing about it. They avoid the awkwardness. They avoid the discomfort. They simply don't enter into the problem. Now, people love to speculate on why the priest and the Levite didn't help out. But you know what Jesus doesn't tell us? Why? Because it's not important. When you're reading your Bible, I encourage you to focus on the details we're given and not the ones that are left out. It's so much more interesting to speculate oftentimes, isn't it? Oh, I wonder what this person was like. I wonder, but we're given what we need. And, you know... The only motivation we're given in these verses is the motivation of the lawyer. The lawyer wants to justify himself and limit the scope of God's command to love his neighbor. That's the only motivation we see. The motivation of the priest and the Levite, well, they don't actually matter one bit to the man left half dead by the roadside. They don't matter because they're nothing. They're, they're not neighbors to him. They're no help to him whatsoever. They haven't entered in. And if you're too busy to show mercy, too distracted to show mercy, too bitter to show mercy, too sad to show mercy, too judgmental to show mercy, the result is the same. Love of self instead of love of neighbor and a lack of mercy. And the Apostle James writes about this kind of faith. He writes, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And you can almost hear the Apostle James reflecting on the parable of the Good Samaritan. They're, they're, they're closely aligned, the teaching there. And James is saying, we can't be the church while avoiding mercy. He's saying, you can't love God without loving neighbor because it's essential to the work of the church. And yet we're avoiding it every single day. We like to pretend that following Jesus is a lot more complicated than it is. There's a certain amount of freedom that we find in the imagined ambiguity of God's calling on the church. And I don't know about you, but I, I relate to this lawyer. I justify to myself that if I helped every person in need, well, where would I be? I'd be overwhelmed. I wouldn't be able to take care of any of my other responsibilities. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you ever, maybe, maybe I'm the only one who thinks like that. But a, a contrived or imagined sense of overwhelm keeps me from opening my eyes to people who may be in need around me. But mostly, I relate to the lawyer because I think I can make myself a good person before God. And we call this self-righteousness. And it leads to the avoidance of neighboring. Because self-righteous people don't show mercy. Because we don't really think we need mercy. And self-righteous people see all the problems with their neighbors, all that they do wrong. They don't see any of the problems with themselves. I have a neighbor who parked poorly outside my house for like two months at the start of this year. It was driving me nuts. And they had this flat tire and they were poorly parked. And, I, you know, I live in West Ghent, where parking is a little bit of a premium. And this is, like, one of my go-to spots. And my heart is just filled with disdain for this person that I did not know because of their parking job. And what a self-righteous response that was. You know, it wasn't until I was uh, reflecting on this sermon and uh, preparing the sermon, that I, it even occurred to me that maybe this person needed help. That maybe this person with this like beat up car and this like truly flat tire, like flat as flat can be, maybe they needed help. Uh, by the time I got around to maybe thinking about doing anything, they, somebody else had helped them or they had gotten some other help. But you see how that, that self-righteous view of the world just shaped the way I even saw this person and potential need. And neighboring can mean different things at, at different times. And, and surely sometimes it can mean tough love. I, I'll grant that. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about mercy. And the, for the lawyer types, the tough love types, the respectable, I don't want to get involved in this mess types, I think we need to hear what Jesus is saying. That we are avoiding part of our calling as the church. And it's a calling to love the downcast and the broken. Regardless of the details, it's a calling to give of ourselves as Christ gave Himself to us, and this should get our attention. It's it's a countercultural calling. There was an article in the Washington Post a couple months ago about a woman named Stella Borbus who lives in Miami, and she's a restaurant owner. She was going early in the morning to you know start working at the restaurant, coming from yoga class during morning rush hour in Miami, and she sees 
these people by the side of the road. And one of them is this young woman whose bare legs were covered in blood. And Stella's yoga instructor, the yoga instructor, had told her to do some good for someone that day. And she didn't see anyone else stopping to help, so she pulled over. And turns out it was a young Haitian immigrant couple, and the woman was in active labor by the side of the road during morning rush hour. And they didn't speak English, and it was their neighbor who was driving them, but the neighbor apparently just like freaked out and panicked in the traffic And when she started going into labor and just pulled over to the side of the road and said, all right, everybody out. And so naturally, Stella calls 911, and they tell her, you're going to have to deliver this baby. So this woman who's driving to work from yoga class suddenly finds herself delivering a baby for total strangers by the side of the road. And what I loved about the story, and she was, they successfully delivered the baby. And what I loved about the story was the young mother, the Haitian mother said in an interview afterwards, nobody else stopped or called 911. They just kept driving. And we believe God sent Stella to help deliver our daughter. She not only delivered our baby, she's helping us build a better life for both our daughters, and there's no doubt that Stella is our friend for life. And you go on to find out that in the article, Stella's continuing to stay involved in their lives and helping this immigrant couple try to get residency and all that. You know, the natural thing, of course, is to avoid this kind of situation. That's what 99% of people were doing, driving by. Uh, and that's why this woman saw that Stella must be one sent from God because she showed forth that character, that mercy. So let's talk finally about the embrace of neighboring by the church. How do we embrace that heart that we just heard about? And what would it look like for us to embrace neighboring like that? Look at how the parable ends. You know, the great shock of the parable, which is lost on us today, sadly, is that the hero is a Samaritan. I mean, Nowadays, we hear the word Samaritan, we think, well, that must be a really good person. What a, what a great person, a Samaritan. That is not at all how Jesus intended it in the parable. It's, it's because of this parable that we think that. But G Samaritans were despised among the Jews of Jesus' day. They had wrong theology. They worshipped incorrectly. They were far too comfortable with the secular powers of the age. They did they were, they were morally compromised, and they were. They were. And yet, the Samaritans' actions speak for themselves, don't they? Unlike the priest and the Levite, what do we see in verse 34? He went to the man, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You know, the end of verse 33 said, he had compassion. What a great word. And then, not only does he take him to this inn, but when he leaves, he gives a bunch of money to the innkeeper and promises to cover any additional expenses when he comes back. And, you know, Jesus then, again, turns the question back on the lawyer. He's told this parable, and just like he did in verse 26, he now asks the lawyer a question. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Uh, of course, the answer is obvious. The lawyer can't miss it. And he says in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. So what does Jesus say in response? You go and do likewise. So in answer to this whole question of, of what does it look like to inherit eternal life, Jesus is suggesting that 
that showing love to our neighbors, that showing mercy is part of the pathway to eternal life. And he's inviting the lawyer to put his belief in action. Okay, lawyer, you believe all that the scriptures say. Well, let's actually see it lived out. What what Jesus calls his people to be is a reflection of the heart of God to the world. To embrace all that we read in the word and to, and to embody it to the world. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they struggled the same way. Religious leaders struggle today. And religious people struggle today, caring more about outward appearances of respectability and rule following than the very character of God. And make no mistake, if you care about the character of God, what we see in Jesus' life is that people are going to think unseemly things about you. You know, who do we see Jesus spending time with? Some very unrespectable, undignified people. And that is a real problem for people who care about our image, people who care about our outward appearances. Because what, you know, what Jesus always does when confronted with this kind of legalism is he doesn't minimize the law. He says it's actually so much greater than what you're understanding. It's actually so much greater than what you've embodied. And so he then does invite us to go live according to this standard that we can't possibly meet. And we need to embrace neighboring in the church, not because we're going to perfectly get it right, but because Jesus is saying, this is the pathway to learning what life is going to be like in the kingdom of heaven. This is the the character, the heart of my people that we will have for all eternity. And he wants us to embody and live this out now. Now, the apostle James also writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so James is saying, we need to be unstained from the world, but we also have to care for orphans and widows in their affliction. And so we have to find a way to balance these two things. We can't live as the world lives. We can't just go about just, well, God's, God's called me to show mercy, so I'm just going to go out and kind of do whatever I want and try and be nice to people. He, want, he wants us to show forth holiness and righteousness, but we can't do it by separating ourselves from the needs of the world. There's so many hurting people in this world who God wants to minister to through his church. And so he calls us to this really challenging work. That's why worship is so important on Sundays for remembering our character, for remembering our identity, for as, as Martha was, had to be challenged immediately after this passage, to delight in the Lord. That we might be able to then go out from here as, as Christians, and not just as, as, as do-gooders, but as Christians going out to love the world. And so as we, as we continue to worship, we have to remember the importance of worshiping through our lives through serving the poor, through loving the people the Lord places in our path. You, you are just one person. You cannot go and, uh, you know, meet every need that is in Virginia Beach. The Lord can. 
And he's going to meet one need through you this week. And he's going to meet another through another person. Through this whole church, he can meet the needs of the needy, of the hurting, of the broken. And so we have to have eyes that recognize both God's goodness, God's greatness, God's majesty, and our role, but a small part to play in the greater work of the kingdom of heaven. But we can't turn a blind eye to all the needs in our city. As we read this story, I think most of us relate far more to the priest, the Levite, the lawyer, than to the Samaritan, okay? Uh, But I want to encourage you to see that we will never show mercy as the church until we see ourselves not as the Samaritan, but as the one who was left half dead by the side of the road. Because when the church thinks of itself as just a club for good, successful, nice people, maybe people who once in a while mess up and need forgiveness, you know, it struggles to be the kind of witness that God calls us to be to the world. Instead, it's when we see that we were dead in our sin, there was nothing to commend us to the Father, and we were without hope, and yet still he loved us. Still he sent his son Jesus into the world to rescue us. It's when we recognize how, how much we have received mercy that we can begin to show forth that character of mercy to the world. Because the Samaritan does, the Samaritan points us to the work of Jesus, doesn't he? The Samaritan, by entering in to the pain and the brokenness of this man, without any strings attached, that's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus poured out his own blood for you. He's bound up your wounds from the great enemy that is sin itself. And he's clothed you with his robes, with his righteousness, a new identity in him. And it's with that identity that we can move out into the world and begin to see it with new eyes. Not as these self-righteous people, but as, but as people who've received mercy and who are looking to show that mercy to the world. Because remember, the Christians show mercy to others because we have rece- received mercy from God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us with an unimaginable love. Through the work of Jesus, your Son, You have brought us near to yourself. You have redeemed our souls and you have transformed us into agents of the kingdom. So help us now, Father. Help us to show forth your love to this world. Help us to be humble. Help us to see that we are those who have received much, that we might give much to those we encounter in need. So we do pray, Lord, that you would use us for your kingdom, that you would build us up, that we might be a part of your work of transforming this world in preparation for the return of our glorious Savior, your Son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.